Hey there, this is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the storytelling family, where we get real cutthroat story style. Live on stage, stripped of notes and inhibitions. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. Now, for the final cut. It's Scissors, hard-edged slice of life stories, the slam from our August 29th summer season finale show. During the slam, we randomly draw names from a random vessel, and the chosen few have five minutes to stand up on stage and cut to the quick. This episode also spotlights a special story slam from Story Story Night co-creator and our first ever story slammer, Hollis Welsh. Because life's all about cutting through the red tape, then cutting your losses. It's late night stories. Too legit to quit. Hey, hey. <laughs> Her name is Hollis Welsh. <laughs> I'd be cold, but I'm not. I want to just give a little shout out to to Jessica Holmes, because, yeah, six plus years ago, (laughs) she she and I were doing some marketing together, and and I just loved her immediately, and we had this similar idea, but I I give it all the credit to her, but um, I had a friend who was doing The Moth in L.A., and she had this idea for storytelling, you know, thing in Idaho, in Boise, and um, so we talked a lot, and then uh, really, she, this is her, she created this, and she's flown with it for six years, and I just think the community, you know, the, the, what she's given to our community by letting us share our stories with each other is profound, you know? I think uh, people are interested in sharing stories right now and getting to the truth of things, and connecting that way. So I just want to thank you personally and from our community for six amazing years. And I love you. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so my, okay, so I have, so scissors, I have two little girls at home, my beautiful daughters. They, so we have a lot of scissors all over the place. They're just, we have a messy house because we have busy girls. And these scissors are like colorful and rounded tips, and they use them in these very imaginative ways, basically, to create. They're just in this imaginative world all the time, and they're cutting things up and to supplement their stories. And um, and I, I, it's so it's so creative. And and then I, you know, I use the scissors in a more kind of uh, just a useful utilitarian way. You know, I cut labels off of things, clothes and open packages and and I um but I also find that I have um internal scissors we all do I think that allow us to sort of trim and shape our lives and cut things out of our lives that um maybe don't serve us anymore or that we can't serve back um it's just growth but I found that I've used scissors on um, people that I love, I think more in the past, as I was a younger person growing up and, trying, and finding my way. Um, and I think of, of one person in particular. Um, she was my bestest girlfriend at the time. This was years ago in another city. It really was another lifetime ago. And um, I just want to, my le- my, the bottom of this leg is shaking. 
and it's really weird as I'm talking through this like shake. So anyways, um, but uh, she was this really magnificent, she still is, um, woman and very creative and sensual and um, just one of those people that's willing to just be messy and live in it and be okay with it and be vulnerable and um, intimate. And, and we, were, we were the fast, fast friends. And at the time uh, in my life, it was this really beautiful period of kind of messiness. And, and, um, and we were very close. We were like in love, you know, but we, without the sex. But um, there was this one time when we did have sex. And um, so, she, I was house-sitting out in the woods, and she came to spend the night, and we were in the outdoor hot tub. And you know, I mean, it's like perfect setting for this hot, steamy, romantic night or whatever. But um, except that I, like, I did not, I think we felt differently about one another, or she sort of was, I guess it wasn't clear what she was, where she was going with this, you know? <laughs> So I was just in the hot tub, you know, and then the next thing I know, she, what do you swim, float, hot, walk over in a hot tub. She made her way over in the hot tub. And uh, so she, you know, she went down on me. She started going down on me. And uh, yeah, and um, okay, so like, so who's gone down on a woman? Let's raise our hands. Let's see, show of hands. Good. Tiger, okay. Um, so, yes, so for all of you wonderful crotch lickers, um, it is, so it's hard, because I've done it too. It's like not the easy, you know, there's some, like, skill and endurance and strength <laughs> required in the tongue. So, okay, so I'm, like, not really f feeling it, a and underwater. I did sit up for her, uh, you know, I wanted to, so, anyways. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm a friend, I was, I was being around. So, um, anyway, so she, but I knew, like, it was uh, clear to me, like, okay, this isn't going anywhere for me, and I could see, like, okay, she's starting to feel it, you know, it's like, okay, so, so naturally, as a friend, you know, my, it was time to, like, use my, you know, little internal scissors to say, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm just, like, I love you so much, but I'm not feeling this, you know because that would have been the right thing to do as a friend, but instead I, I faked an orgasm. Um, just so, because I wanted to like, let her be done. Like, okay, it's great. And um, yes, so who's faked an orgasm? I don't do it very much, never anymore, but that one time, that one time I did. So, um, so then, okay, so then it was really time to like, okay, that was, that was weird and and then let's just put that past us and whatever. So of course, so the next, you know, the next thing I did is went into the bedroom where she was, and I went down on her. I don't know. I don't know what was. I don't know why. I felt like, I felt like I. It's the the least I could do. I don't know. I just, it's horrible. It's not this. Was, it didn't go in a good place. So. But I, so I had been with women at that time, and so I had a little bit more experience, but I, I'm sort of a, I think I was, you know, I was the girl in those relationships, but lazy too, you know what I mean? Like, so I had a little bit more experience, but so she did, so she did have an orgasm, and it really was a beautiful, it is a beautiful, you know, experience, and, 
And there is something about, um, as a woman, you know, when you have an orgasm, it really is because you've allowed yourself to open up and, and receive. And it's very, it's vulnerable, you know, and it's, um, there's a, a intimacy and a giving over to that ecstasy. And, and from the other perspective, it's not that way. It can be very beautiful and very connected and touching, but you're not as vulnerable. And, you know, I think for men, um, it's not the same thing. And for women who are giving, you know, pleasure to another woman or another person, it's just a different experience. And, and um, she, you know, she was very vulnerable. She let herself be. And, and I think I was left with, I didn't know how to be after that with her. I, I um, like I loved her dearly and I, I still did. I think part of me was turned off by it, but I just didn't know how to, you know what, this happened. What I wish I would have happened is that the next day we would have just laughed about it and that we would still laugh about it every year. Like, oh yeah, I remember. But I, I <laughs> remember that time. Um, but I wasn't the person that I, and that I wanted to be at the time. And I, I don't even know if I still am. You know, the person I would want to be is, is just comfortable in that position with her. Like, yeah, I, we did that, and, and I did that for you, and it was beautiful, and, and I'm okay with that, and I'm comfortable. But I wasn't, and I, um, a, shortly after that, she had broken her foot and was on crutches and asked, uh, should she come over one night to hang out? And, and I said, yeah, of course, but, but I was, there was this like resentment or s stuff in me when she was there. I found myself getting mad at her throughout the night. And I, I really did, I just, like, I ended up just cutting that friendship off. Like, I, I had no grace about it, and, and I really just ended up ending that relationship. And it's so, you know, you, you look back on the moments in your life and the choices you make, and, and on one hand, you know, you want to make, diff make different choices from here, looking back, but you can't. So all you can do is take that and it becomes part of your foundation, you know, and you hope that you shape your life each day moving forward, that you cut out the picture of yourself, you know, that you want to put back there, that you present that every day, and you move forward, and, and I don't know, I just would want to, I would want to call, I would want to call her, I don't even know how to get a hold of her, and, and just, yeah, have that laugh, maybe I will, maybe that's what this story is about, is I have a phone call to make, to my friend, she's really beautiful. And I, you sh everyone should go down on a woman once in your life. <laughs> Maureen Durning. Are you ready for this, Maureen? <laughs> okay, so the story is scissors for tonight. So um, how many people, well, I can't see you anyway, but how many people here s grew up in Idaho? or have lived here a long time. Okay, so everybody else must have cut some ties from somewhere to get here. So this is my story about how I ended up in Idaho, and actually today is exactly 14 years from the time when I left Cincinnati, Ohio to come here. Oh, so, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if that requires applause, but um, so here's what was happening. Um, I had a job that I loved. 
I had a husband who, this week is our 44th anniversary. Um, I had a home that I had built from plans that I had carried around in my purse for 10 years. It was my dream home. It was on an acre and a half of woods with a 43-foot swimming pool in the backyard. I loved it. I loved it. We had a hot tub, but <laughs> I had no, no, ex- no experiences like the former story in the hot tub. Um, so I have two daughters. My daughters were grown. They were both off. One daughter was off married and living in Atlanta, Georgia. The other daughter was off in St. Louis um, in college, and she was about to finish. And my husband's a physician, and he was very unhappy with his job. He was getting very... Um, Oh, just, I don't know if it was some sort of a midlife crisis or whatever. And when you're a physician or an attorney or I'm sure many, many other professions, you get these headhunters that call you all the time and say, oh, there's a wonderful opportunity here, there, and everywhere all around the world. So he got, an, uh, a, um, he got a call from someone who said, oh, there's a marvelous opportunity in Boise, Idaho, with a, a hospital called St. Alphonsus, they want to open up a new office, and they're looking for internists to staff this new office. And they wanted to bring us out for a weekend in Boise, Idaho, to, um, to look, at, look at Boise, Idaho. <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> Boise, Idaho? I mean, you have to kind of look at a map. When you grow up in Cincinnati, Ohio, you really never, ever have heard of Boise, Idaho. I mean, the subject never comes up. So, so, so we, we, so they wanted to give us a free weekend in Boise, Idaho. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, we'll go. And so we came and they put us up at the Grove Hotel and um, at that time, you know, the restaurant that's on the corner there in that neat old dark uh, Art Deco building that was called the Manhattan Grill at that time. It's been changed a hundred times since then, but it was a really neat upscale kind of restaurant. And they sent us to dinner there and they were whining and dining my husband, taking him around and showing him the hospital and all this stuff. And so meanwhile, I'm on my own and just walking around Boise, Idaho and <laughs> and at that time, everything's left. At that time, the grape escape was there on the corner. And we were going to meet there at 5 o'clock um, after he was doing this and that. We were going to meet at the grape escape and have a glass of wine or something. And then we were going to go and have our fancy dinner at, um, at the Manhattan Grill. And so earlier in the day, we stopped into the Manhattan Grill. Cincinnati, Ohio is not a big town like Chicago or New York, but it's a lot bigger than Boise, Idaho. (laughs) And so we went into the Manhattan Grill earlier and said, um, oh, um, you know, um, we want to come. Can we get reservations for later on this evening, you know, 6.30 or 7? And my husband, who's much more into how he looks than I am, you can tell. <laughs> he said, oh, is there a dress code? And the, <laughs> the woman said, honey, this is Boise Idaho. <laughs> okay. So we're back at the Grape Escape. I'm having a glass of wine at the Grape Escape, and he came up from his meeting, 
And he came in and he sat down, and I'm a crier. Patty knows this, and my friend Martha knows this. I'm a crier, and all of a sudden I burst into tears. And I said, and he's like, what's the matter now? And I said, we're going to do this, aren't we? We're, we're going to move to Boise, Idaho? Are we really going to do this? Well, we were both just a nervous wreck about it. You know, we had our home, we had everything. I was signed up to start a graduate program at Xavier University. It was going to start in a month. I mean, I, all this neat stuff was happening at home. And Cincinnati is a very interesting city. Probably nobody here knows would know this. Cincinnati's an east-west kind of town. There's the west side and the east side. If you grow up on the west side of Cincinnati like I did, you never leave. <laughs> it's very, very Catholic. When we were growing up, and even now, um, even now, if I get together with old friends, you don't talk about where people come from. You talk about what parish they're from. Oh, the kids from St. Teresa are going to go out with the kids from St. Williams, and then we're going to meet up with the Resurrection of the Lady of Lords kids. You know, so that's how, that's just how you talk. People live for two and three generations and four generations and send their, their kids to the same Catholic grade schools and high schools because they never leave. They all stay within a, a mile or two of each other. So um, it was a big deal for us to move this, to, to build this wonderful city, this wonderful um, house, because we were on the other side of town. And my mom would say to people, oh, the kids have moved to the other side. Um, we were half an hour away, but we had moved to the other side. So I just want to set up for you what a big deal it was for us to move to Boise, Idaho. So St. Alphonsus was being very nice. They offered my husband the job, and he said, well, give me some time to think about it. And like two weeks went by, and he said, you know, we've got to give him an answer. And I said, okay. So it was a Wednesday evening. And I said to my husband, okay, Friday night we're going to make the decision. So um, I said, you know, be ready for Friday night. So Wednesday, Wednesday night, I, I'm a very spiritual person, you know, I'm one of those Catholics from the west side of Cincinnati, but um, not Catholic anymore, very spiritual, but I don't, I don't tend to like say, oh, you know, God, do this, that, or the other for me. But that night, that Wednesday night, I said, God, give me a sign. I need a sign. I need to know what to do. Thursday morning, I woke up, and I, we watched the Today Show every morning, and you know how people stand there, and they hold up signs that say, happy birthday, Grandma. <laughs> There was a person holding a sign that said, come to Boise, Idaho. <laughs> so that's the first thing that happened. I then went to work and a friend of mine, and I had told nobody, I hadn't told anybody at work or at my family, nobody knew we were even considering this. Somebody at work said, oh, my son just got accepted to University of Idaho. He's going to go to Idaho. Somebody else came in and had a little potato pin on her, <laughs> on her collar, and she said, oh, we went to this training, and these trainers were from Idaho, and, um, and they gave us these little pins. 
Then I'm doing the crossword puzzle, and up came location of Moscow or Moscow, and Russia didn't fit, and here comes the H. (laughs) And in my crossword puzzle was Idaho. So Friday night, my husband came in, and he said, well, I've made a decision. And I said, well, I have two. And he said, and I said, well, you can go first. And he said, well, and his words were, I'll never forget this, I think we should stick it out here for two years <laughs> so that I could do this graduate program and this and that and the other. And I said, you know what? I think we're supposed to go to Idaho. <laughs> and he said, oh, do you think I should call them right away? <laughs> so he was just being very sweet, was going to hang out for me. So we opened up one bottle of wine and then two bottles of wine, and then we moved to Idaho. So that's it. Jessica Roberts. Jessica. Come on up. So this is a story about um, I was... I'd finished my PhD, uh, I was living in Washington, D.C., and the first two jobs I got, because I kind of lined up two in a row, <laughs> I was going to teach for a semester at sea for a semester, and then I was going to move to China to take a job, and I was going to be there for several years. So I had to like take care of everything I owned, like I sold and donated and threw away and then shipped a bunch of stuff to my mom, and then I had a couple things left, and there was like the bag I was going to take with me on the ship, and then there was a bag of stuff that I wanted to have in China but I didn't want to take on the ship. And so I had a couple of friends who were coming to visit me like right before I left. Um, And they were from Chicago and I was gonna be in Chicago for Christmas. So I was like, this is great. You guys can take my bag and it'll be in Chicago. And when I get off the ship, I'll spend Christmas in Chicago. And then from Chicago, I'm going to China. Did you follow? It's like, okay. (laughs) So um, my friends come to visit. We had a really nice weekend. And while they're on their way out, I give them my bag. And I'm like, okay, cool. So thanks for taking my bag. And I'm operating under this assumption that pretty much everybody these days just brings carry-on luggage. And if I gave them an additional bag, that they would just put it, like, they would check it, right? So I get a call from my friend a couple hours later after they've arrived at the airport. And he's gone through airport security. And he's like, uh, so there was a lot of stuff in that bag. So I had put in all these things that I thought I might need because I was going to live in China for years. So I had like scissors, like long, you know, big scissors, uh, knitting needles, a pocket knife, a screwdriver. <laughs> and then I think there was like a second pair of smaller scissors. So he said it was like a Mary Poppins scene at the TSA where the guy just kept being like, and you have this too? And he's like, this is someone else's bag, but he's probably not supposed to have a bag that he didn't pack. So he's like, uh, yeah, right. I totally forgot I had that too. Uh, so, so they kept, you know, like they took several of the things. And the way he told the story, I thought I'd lost everything. But actually, so then like six months later, when I got to Chicago and I got the bag, I was delighted to find like the scissors had survived. I was like, oh, I thought those would be gone for sure. And the knitting needles. Um, and so then the nice part of the story is that later I knitted a scarf for one of those friends as sort of like a payback, like thanks for um, taking one from the TSA for me and bringing all my stuff. So that's my story. <laughs> the penultimate story slammer will be Rachel Boxa. Rachel? There have been a few pivotal moments in my life that have been lived on the Story Story Night stage. Um, 
I met my ex-husband because of Story Story Night. <laughs> Jessica came and sat wistfully on the banks of the river at my wedding, despising love. I wanted to sit next to her and despise it also. <laughs> but there were also moments where I stood up in front of people like at the apocalypse celebration when 2012 turned into 2013 when I told one of my hardest, darkest stories in front of an audience and there was a standing ovation and this organization is it's so incredible because there are the times that you get up in front of strangers and you tell stories that are just kind of silly. And there are times that you get up in front of strangers and you tell stories that are like this tidal wave from inside of you, letting go of all of the shit that there is no other avenue in your life to release. And so as an individual, I have a lot of things for Jessica and this program. So. Clap for her. In other news, I have a story about scissors. Um, so about uh, six months after my son was born, I became a mom. <laughs> There's this period of early motherhood where you don't know your name and there are all of these fluids leaking from all these places and you don't really know what's going on and for some women there's this child that comes out of them and they just go you belong to me and there's like this like in your eyes the light the heat but that didn't happen for me I just spent like a month crying <clears throat> it wasn't great. Um, but so my son was born in May, and in November, I got a call from my mother. Um, my mother and I have <laughs> a really um, dynamic relationship. And, um, and she says that my grandmother is dying and I need to get on a plane. Uh, so I, in the depths of postpartum, sort of momming and sort of not, and sort of wifing and sort of not, um, get on a plane to North Louisiana where I haven't been in um, about 10 years on purpose. <laughs> my family, all my North Louisiana family, they all live on something that they call the compound. So my grandmother owns a tract of land in North Louisiana, and on it there's a house, three trailers, a trampoline, and a really sketchy set of woods. And my whole family lives there. Um, every goddamn one of them. Um, <laughs> so I decide to return to the compound because Mimi is dying. Um, so I load my six month old on the plane. I am broke. So I take the four stop flight from Boise to Shreveport. <laughs> And when I get there, um, I'm greeted by my mother, who I haven't seen in about almost 10 years. Um, we drive to the compound, and everything's fine the first night. But the next morning, we wake up, and my mother walks into the living room with a brand spanking new pixie cut. Now, this is fine, except that my mother is a Pentecostal. And Pentecostal women don't cut their hair. Uh, 
because Jesus won't recognize you if you cut your hair. It's, it's like a bad hairdresser, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know about you. Um, so my mother's not cut her hair in about 10 years. My grandmother had never cut her hair in her entire life. Um, when I was a kid, I remember being completely fucking terrified of my grandmother, walking down the hall with her floor-length braid. She seemed like something out of a horror movie. Um, and so my mother hasn't cut her hair in about 10 years, except she decides to give herself a pixie cut overnight. Um, and then announces that we're going to the funeral home right now because they don't know how to do my grandmother's hair. And so we have to go. So we show up at the funeral home and I've got my six month old baby on my hip, my very wobbly, very pixie cutted mother on my other arm, and then the whole crew from the compound trailing behind, bitching about every single thing that you can imagine with fewer teeth than you can imagine. <laughs> we arrive and my mother demands to be let into the dressing room. So I don't know how much you know about funeral homes, but there's the room where they allow the family to see the deceased, and then there's the room <laughs> where they do the things you don't want to smell. Um, and my mother demands to be let into that room, goes back, comes back and announces to the entire family that they have fucked up Mimi's hair, and we are leaving, and we are taking Mimi. The funeral director is trying to explain to her why this is a bad idea, but apparently, with her hair, she cut off her common sense. And so we are leaving this funeral home and we are taking Mimi with us. I spend the next 20 minutes with a fussy six-month-old trying to talk my mother down, and somehow, at the end of this conversation, it turns out that I am going to braid my grandmother's six-foot-long hair in the creepy gurney room with the sinks and the smells and the call, I know, no. There were like call, mm, no, mm, no. Don't go ever, don't ever go back into the back room of your home. Um, so I'm back there and my son is walking around the floor because he won't have anyone else. So my fun, son's cruising around the floor near this gurney like weaving in and out of the legs and I have got this comb and I'm teasing my grandmother's hair because she had this really like excellent like front bun. There had to be like, like, I don't know if you've ever seen Pentecostal hair, but there's like a certain amount of foof that is required. But those women are not leaving the house. And my mother has decided that my grandmother will not be buried without the foof. So I'm teasing a dead woman's hair. And, my, and also trying to like micromanage my six month old like from picking up things off the floor of the funeral home because that's not, that's not a thing that anyone needs in their mouth. <laughs> Eventually, I braid the hair, and my mother comes back and decides that it's to her satisfaction. Um, and we all go back to the compound, where my mother decides that my English degree has suddenly qualified me to do her hair as well. So she decides she's not going to my grandmother's funeral unless I give her a haircut also. I've never cut anyone's hair in my life since my Barbies at the age of three, and that didn't that didn't go well. Um, so I start giving my mother a pixie cut, and um, for the first time in my entire life, she she obviously hates it, and and she pretends not to. 
And she starts talking to me. It's the first thing I've ever done in my life that my mom pretended to like. Um, and so, so she starts talking to me about all the reasons that I should take my son and move to Louisiana. And my cousin, one of my favorite cousins, is sitting across the room watching. And in Louisiana, there are a lot of reasons that your cousin could be watching you really closely. But He just seemed mostly worried. <laughs> After I finished cutting my mom's hair, he asked me to go for a walk around the compound with him. So we start pacing the trailers, <clears throat> stepping over cigarette butts and cinder blocks and old tires. <laughs> and he says to me, you can't do this. I'm looking at you, and I watched you rat tail our grandmother's hair yesterday, and I'm thinking, they're going to talk you into living here. And that's going to be the end. That's going to be the end of your future. And you're going to live on the compound and collect disability and cut your mom's hair for the rest of this microphone. Really, is just being a real dick right now. Um, <laughs> all right, that's better. And he says, you need to cut ties. You need to let go. You've spent the last 20 years being your mom's mom. And uh, you need to go back to Idaho because your son needs a mom. Because <laughs> I'd spent the last four days completely wrapped up in my mom's shit and letting my son crawl around a funeral home back room <laughs> trying to take care of someone who for 50 years never bothered to take care of herself. So... The next day, I called the airline and I moved my flight up. Um, and the day that my son turned six months old, I became a mom to him. You ready for this? Steve Ritter. Yes, yeah, Steve. Steve, I only have one prize left, so you're welcome. <laughs> I put my name in thinking it wouldn't really get drawn, trying to get my girlfriend some courage, so we're gonna, we're gonna go for it. <laughs> so scissors oriented. Talk about cutting some ties, more or less. And one of the largest ones usually is fear. Um, and I'm the kind of person that's not always so bright, and I have the kind of tenacity that when I was a kid, I slept with gum in my mouth, ended up in my hair, back when I still could, could grow more of it. Um, <laughs> And I pulled on this until I cried because I refused to try and cut it with scissors because I'm, I'm that dumb and tenacious. <laughs> Along those lines, some of the other things that have, have really been monumental tie-cutting um, times in my life, one of the major ones was uh, I graduated high school. I came up to Boise, Idaho for the first time about 12 years ago and worked with my brother and family and business mixed about like oil and water. It was fucking awful. <laughs> he, he was using me for a bunch of things that I didn't understand because I was very sheltered, grew up Jehovah's Witness, so I had no idea what was going on. Turns out he was using me to detox from meth and I was doing all the work and paying his bills and not getting my own business like we were planning on. Um, and I remember the moment that I, 
I decided that, that I was done with that. And it was going from feeling some of the most fear you can feel to feeling completely relieved. It felt like a, late, a weight was lifted off my chest when I made that decision. Went back to Texas and back to my high school job and some other stupid crap. But I came back to Boise because this place is awesome and Texas fucking sucks. <laughs> So, <laughs> one thing I picked up, being that Boise is awesome, is uh, whitewater kayaking. And I learned how to roll at the rec center at Boise State, and I went for my first like kayaking trip with a raft, and that was it. And I had a roll, you know? I thought I was good. Ended up swimming both the class three rapids in the Deschutes, was just terrified, didn't touch it for a year, just stayed away from it. Um, and then ended up jumping back into it, got with a good group of other kayakers, do that if, you, if you're going to do this thing, and we went and did the main payette, and I was nervous. I was so racked with fear. I got through 101 and 102, which are the first two easy ones, pretty well. Then in the go left, the one everybody's supposed to be kind of afraid of, I went too far left. Immediately went in the hole behind the rock and flipped over, and I told myself as I was going into it, this is it. This is the game. I set up. I rolled back up. Went over the big-ass wave at the very beginning and rolled another five times that, that trip, but I never swam. And afterwards, I was so freed. I felt so alive after cutting that fear again. And the third one that I'm going to leave you with is recently on a trip. We went. It's in another river. Um, we went up and hung around the uh, Oregon Caves and hung around a river nearby there and decided that we were going, me, me and my girlfriend, were going to go ahead and, and get freaky there in the river with people swinging off of a swing less than 100 yards away, a bridge with traffic going by it less than 100 yards away. I had a plan. Like I'm usually pretty dumb, but I had a plan if like a raft went by. I was just going to kind of shield her with my body and not turn my head around so they couldn't identify my face with their GoPro. <laughs> and, you know, we, we have our fun and... Um, fortunately, no riot police showed up because that would have changed that experience significantly. Um, and afterwards, again, felt so alive and free. Um, which, you know, normally you do mostly, but this, this one was different. There was a lot more punch to this one. So that's my story about cutting the ties of fear. Thanks for listening. Story Story Late Night is brought to you by our story party. Board members Bob Haycock, Jody Eckelberger, Amy Moran, Hannah Schaefer, Karis Kimball, Karen Moore, and Elizabeth McKenna. Volunteer coordinator Ginny Estes, and yours truly, Jessica Holmes. The Late Night Season is brought to you with generous support from the iconic Over 19 show. Scissors was made possible with the support of the modern hotel and bar, where bodies in motion come to rest. Rawr along with the big-time support of the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. Props to the DJ magic of Stardust Lounge, the podcast production of Stephen Baldessari, the late-night theme song by Ned Evett, and the show photography by Paul Budge. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned. 
at storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter at Story Story Night.